Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Aftermath For Episode 41 Chapter 35 The Banker William Johnson And Cantos 21, 22, and 23 Of Dante's Inferno The Grafters and the Hypocrites Hey! You came back, I came back, or maybe you're stopping in for the first time. Or maybe you've never actually left. You've just been hanging around this podcast feed like some sort of a goblin. Either way, we're here together. It's like fate or something. Okay, maybe not fate, but it's still pretty cool that we're sharing this moment together. This week's aftermath is a biggin'. It spans one chapter, two sins, and three cantos of the Inferno. I'm also gonna try to drop a little bit more history into this one than usual. And there will be a pop quiz afterwards. Okay, so no pop quiz... Who needs that kind of stress anyway? I mean, I'd hate for you to hyperventilate and need to get a note from the nurse or something. All right, all right, all right. Enough of this jibber-jabber. Let's get on with the show. In Cantos 21 and 22 of The Inferno, Dante and Virgil traverse the fifth ring of Malibulge. The Grafters. These are the sinners who abused their authority and office. They are doomed to an eternity of suffering in a sea of boiling tar or pitch, as Dante puts it. When they come up for air or show themselves, they are subjected to lashings and are constantly being prodded by a group of devils armed with pitchforks and chains. Dante, at one point, even compares these people to frogs. Dante is in awe of this place, so much so that he doesn't even notice a demon coming his way. Virgil pulls him back, and they watch as the demon throws a sinner into the pitch. Dante takes refuge behind a large rock while Virgil musters up the courage to speak to whoever is in charge here. Virgil is cautious, maybe even a little worried that he may not hold as much sway as he would like. After all, it wasn't so long ago that he had to call on divine power to gain entry into the city of Dis. He meets a demon here by the name of Malakota, and is quickly introduced to a gang of demons called Malabranch. Malakota threatens Virgil, but comes around when Virgil explains their journey is one of divine will. Malakota also informs Virgil that the bridge to the other side is broken, but the demons of Malabranch, much like the centaurs before them, would be happy to aid them in crossing. I'm sure they have every intention of helping and being good demon Samaritans. <laughs> I mean, if you can't trust a scary demon monster, well, what kind of world are we living in? Virgil brings Dante up to speed on the whole broken bridge thing, and the poet is introduced to the gang of demons that are going to help them cross. 
Dante's not too keen on this idea. I guess traveling with a group of scary monsters with hooks and chains and pitchforks seems a little less ideal than riding on the back of a majestic horseman with a simple bow and arrow. Besides that, these demons are looking at him like he's a lingerie model in prison. You know, like a really good lingerie model in like a really bad prison. One of them even wants to poke him in the ass with his pitchfork. Virgil assures him these demons are not a threat. Pretty much just kind of tells him to, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Anyway, after Malakota gives the order to escort Dante and Virgil, the demons exchange a vulgar countersign with each other. Kind of like saying, yes, sir, by saluting with the middle finger or something. Only in this case, more vulgar than the middle finger. The general consensus is that Canto 21 actually ends on a fart joke. Before I go any further, I would like to give you the list of names of these demons, because I think they're actually pretty fascinating. I also think it's worth noting that unlike other parts of the Inferno, in which they meet characters from Greek mythology or elsewhere, these are the creation of Dante. Malabranch consists of 13 demons, though only 12 appear to be named or described. And yes, as usual, I'm probably not going to pronounce the names correctly. But, you know, that's hardly a surprise at this point. The leader is Malakota, which translates to Evil Tale. After Malakota, we have Scarmiglione, Ruffled Hair, Barbariccia, curly beard, Alicino, which is likely derived from Arlicino, which apparently means Harlequin. Then there's Calcabrina, which means one who walks on frost, Cagnazzo, bad dog, Libicoco, which is my personal favorite, means love notch, Dragonazzo, so maybe from Drago, meaning dragon, and shigenazo, meaning guffaw, so, I don't know, maybe like dragon laugh or something? Look, I'm not a translator, let's let's move on. Then we have siriato, possibly meaning little pork, graficane, meaning scratch dog, farfarello, butterfly, and rubicante! Possibly meaning red or rabid. I'm going to go ahead and guess rabid myself, because he's a demon, and demons are, I don't know, kind of rabid creatures? Whatever, let's let's get on. Anyways, there's a 13th Malabranch member who was never named in the text. Don't know why he wasn't named. Maybe Dante was superstitious and didn't want to mess with a 13th name. Who knows? Not this guy. Moving on, as I mentioned, the sinners here are boiling in a sticky black pitch. This would be similar to what was used to seal ships at the time, make sure they didn't fall apart or sink. The punishment here is pretty intriguing and one of the more clever ideas of Dante's. If anyone is caught coming up for air or any kind of relief, 
the demons lashed them with chains and hooks. The grafters were corrupt politicians and brokers who abused their authority in office by accepting bribes or abusing their financial power. Here, they are submerged in a boiling pitch, representing the sticky fingers and the dark secrets of their corrupt deals. The demons who guard and torture them represent the constant fear of exposure and punishment that they would have experienced in life. Dante meets an unnamed sinner here, claiming to be from Navarre. He tells the poet that he once served in the house of King Tybalt. I doubt I pronounced that correctly, but again, it's I'm I'm just a guy with 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 a microphone and an internet connection. So let's move on. The conversation breaks off as one of the demons rips into this shade's body. The sinner manages to escape the clutches of the demon and is pursued into the pitch by two members of Malabranch. In their pursuit, they end up getting stuck in the tar-like substance themselves. As the other demons try to free their... friends or co-workers, whatever you want to call them, Virgil and Dante take the opportunity to discreetly take their leave of this unpleasant company, knowing full well by now that Malabranch was likely to do some bad stuff to him. I will admit, I largely ignored Canto 23 in Darker Days. I really only kept a small part of it in my book. Not to worry, though. I'm still going to give you my signature in-depth summary of it. And by that, I mean I'm still going to ramble on about it, because I like talking into a microphone. Anyways, honestly... I'm not sure why I glossed over the hypocrites in darker days. At the time, I probably didn't think it was all that interesting and or important. Also, I was more than likely just really excited and impatient to get to the next portion of the story, which would be Sionfa. I tell you what, that is a doozy of a chapter coming up, if I do say so myself. But more on that one Next time, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to Canto 23. Dante and Virgil enter into the sixth ditch of the eighth circle. This is, as I mentioned before, the hypocrites. The sinners here are all dressed in beautifully lavish, brightly colored cloaks. While beautiful on the outside, the cloaks are lined with lead on the inside, and it weighs these souls down to the point they must move slowly. The symbolism behind this particular punishment is an example of the untruthful nature of the lives these sinners once led. In life, they told lies to present a false image of themselves, while beneath the surface was a heavy, ugly truth. Here, they also meet two jovial friars, Catalano and Lodringo. The Jovial Friars was a group tasked with keeping peace and enforcing order. Cat and Laud here were of two separate parties. Cat was a Guelph, and Ringo was a Ghibelline. Both were appointed to help bring peace to Florence. But their reign 
kind of resulted in more violence and bloodshed. Imagine that. You see, back in Dante's time, Florence was a republic of northern Italy. It had recently established a system of governance with the Ordinances of Justice. This was clear back in uh, 1293. The sovereignty of the country rested on the popolo, an elite, gilded class. The men who pretty much ruled the roost consisted of bankers and businessmen. You know, people with money that were likely easily corruptible. Or corrupted, or corrupt, or... You get the idea. Anyways, these people of great wealth pledged their allegiance to the Guelph party. Okay, still with me? It's okay if you're not. Honestly, I'm probably going to forget most, if not all, of this when I'm done recording anyway, so no big deal. Anyway, the dominant faction was routinely split by fierce rivalries, which led to the Black Guelphs expelling the White Guelphs in 1302. And this, of course, resulted in Dante's exile, seeing as he was a member of the White Guelphs. Okay, so to further explain the black and white Guelph thing, to make it maybe slightly easier to understand, if I'm to understand this correctly myself, the black Guelphs supported the papacy. They were fine with the church and papal rule. The whites, however, opposed the papacy. Not necessarily the church's teachings, mind you. Remember, Dante was still a deeply religious and faithful person. He just wanted, you know, a little bit of, uh, separation of, uh, you know, church and state. Say what? What a progressive dude, right? Nah, well, maybe, I don't know. Mostly he just saw the church as a corrupt institution at the time. If it was more aligned with his vision of what he thought the church should be, he might not have opposed them controlling the government. We also see Caiaphas here, nailed to the ground and walked on by all. And if you don't know who Caiaphas is, it's okay. Neither did I. I had to Google it. So, anyways, here's who he was. He was a Jewish high priest that presided over the Sanhedrin trial of Jesus. And he lies here, nailed to the ground, for his role in the condemnation of Christ. In darker days, we are introduced to the grafter, the banker, William Johnson. Now, I'm not generally one to speak ill of the dead. I've mentioned Willie Bill Johnson before. And I've made my opinions on many, not all, bankers clear. A brief refresher, though, Bill Johnson was indeed a real guy. I'm sure he helped a lot of people, even helped me a time or two. That doesn't mean he was a great person, though. I doubt he ever thought of me as a fellow human being. I doubt he ever thought of a lot of people as fellow human beings. A man defined by money and the ability to lord his financial powers over others. A man who saw dollar signs where people should be. In the original text, his name was William Johanniston. When I found out he was no longer of this mortal realm, 
I promptly changed the name of the character to Johnson. The only reason I didn't change it to Bill Johnson was because I didn't feel like the name Bill matched the world I've been writing in. Like, Ned. Game of Thrones was great and all, but Ned? Ned? Anyways, let's move on. Bill Johnson here is power-hungry. He has money, and he has power. But he wants more. Embezzling and stealing and lording his way to the top, he plans to take Emerald. There's a moment here in which I mention Emerald was briefly taken over by a group of young girls armed with knitting needles. This is a reference to the actual sequel to Baum's wonderful Wizard of Oz, The Marvelous Land of Oz. Anyway, moving on, because I'm going long as it is, or at least I feel like I am. Billy J. tries to get a man by the name of Bonturo on board. This is the name of a grafter in Dante's time. They have a conversation in which Bonturo tries to extort Bill, or William, if you prefer, a further example of what the sin of grafting would encompass. Bonturo points out that William's cart is heavy, and so full of gold that it jingles with the slightest breeze. This is a reference to the heavy cloaks of the hypocrites. There's not much more about the hypocrites in this chapter, at least not until the end. Bonturo throws Johnson to the wolves and calls him out. The stranger shows up, and things take a turn for the worse. He picks a woman and a child from the crowd and tells them to take their place among their sinful leader. While the punishment is different, the sinners aren't boiling in a pool of pitch or being tormented by thirteen demons, each with a wonderfully descriptive name, I feel I did a pretty good job of keeping in theme with Dante. Each sinner here is crucified, nailed to the ground, and covered in the sticky, tar-like substance. And when it's time for the encampment to finally take their leave, they are all ordered to walk on, or pull their carts over, the tarred remains of Bill Johnson, Bonchuro, the woman, and the child. And, of course, the crucifixion of the sinners and their punishment of being trampled is a reference to the punishment of Caiaphas in Canto 23. If I missed something or failed to address something you feel I should have, or if I goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, which is always a possibility, just let me know. I'm always open to questions, comments, or... You guessed it. Constructive criticism. You don't have to like this show. I'm not sure why you'd be listening if you didn't like the show, though. But anyways, like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. I believe in you. Here's a few ways you can get in touch with me. You can find me with the old email, that's darkdaysofdorothygale at outlook.com. You can find me on Twitter, for the time being, at G. The same can be said for TikTok. 
Alternately, you can find me on Twitter again for the time being, TikTok, and Instagram, where it is at the Ordinary Sun. That's S U N. And of course, if social media isn't your jam, if you're just maybe even just tired of that social media grind, there's always the official Dark Days website. That's D D of dg.com You can also find links to t-shirts and stickers and stuff there as well. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and even in paperback form. But at the time of this recording, the podcast is the only way to experience it. If you would like to support the show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker, something like that, is really the coolest way to go about it. If you would like to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct and financial way, you can always find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinary sun. Again, that's S-U-N. If you do, I will send you a handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch and if you'd like a shout-out on this obscure show, I would be happy to do that for you as well. If you don't want to donate to this cause, that is A-OK. Times, well, they be tough, they be. And I'm happy to do this either way. So, come back next time, hopefully soon, for Chapter 36 of Darker Days of Dorothy Gale. Sionfa. Thanks for listening. I love you all. <laughs>